So because this is a narrative text, I'm not gonna do the, uh, I'm not gonna do the normal three points in case you're looking for it, I'm sorry. But we're gonna understand not only what this text says, but how it fits in the whole of the Gospel of John. So we're just gonna, we're gonna walk through the text, uncover some, some pretty significant details, and then we're gonna bring it all together with why you should care. All right, y'all ready? Oh, that's, that's weak. Y'all, y'all ready? It's the word of the Lord. All right, okay. Starts in verse one. Chapter two, verse one. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. And the mother of Jesus was there, Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. Okay, first thing, on the third day. Now, if you know the story of Jesus already, you know that Jesus was raised, on the, was raised from the dead on the third day. So you might think, huh, third day, that's interesting. But it's a little deeper than that. When you look back in chapter one, one of the things that's been happening throughout the entire first chapter is you've been, it's, it's each, each of the events that we've narrated have taken place on a day. So John seeing Jesus, Christ calling his disciples, things like that. If you count up those days, the day of this wedding is day seven. What else happens in seven days in scripture? Creation. Because what we're about to see is an example of new creation. Now, I want you to bear with me, because that sounds like speculation. And I don't know about you, but I don't like speculation. So I want you to file that. File that in the back of your mind. We're going to come back to it. Another parallel. What, 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 what kind of event is this? It's a wedding. Well, let's take a look back at Genesis 2.21. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. What does that event sound like? It sounds like a wedding. Seventh day, seven days of creation, wedding at Cana. Got a wedding, okay, some parallels. Where, where is this wedding in John 2? It's in Cana, which is in Galilee. It's not in Jerusalem, it's in Galilee. Why might that be significant? I want us to, I want us to hear this text as the first readers would hear it with, all, with, these, with these echoes of the Old Testament. I want us to look at Isaiah 9.1. Isaiah 9.1 says, but there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. Said another way, Galilee of the Gentiles. Okay, just a few, just a few things to think about. New creation, a wedding, and it's happening in the land of the Gentiles. So this first verse, this setting of the stage of this miracle is already pregnant with anticipation. And so then where, would, where does this narrative go? It goes into crisis. Verse three, when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what is this to you and to me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Okay, this is, this is peak Jesus right here brothers and sisters. We, we've got a crisis. No wine. The party's starting to fizzle out. 
and the host of the party, the bridegroom, could get in trouble for throwing a lame wedding, okay? These weddings are, are multiple day ordeals. And if you're gonna have a multiple day party, you've gotta have great wine and a fire playlist. So, 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 so for me, like the party is fizzling out when the playlist switches from swag surfing to Sweet Caroline. Like that's, that's not, I'm not, that, that just, that's just not me. That might be you, but it's not. But I, but I want you to notice that when this party appears to be fizzling out, Mary doesn't go to the guy who thinks he's the host of the party, the bridegroom. She goes to the guy who she knows is the host of the party, Jesus. So some of us, some of us make the mistake of looking to the wrong people to help in, in times of crisis. We look to ourselves, we look to the people in front of us, behind us, above us, or below us, but, but is our first impulse as it ought to be to go to the Lord who made us? I don't know about you, but, but Paul's command to pray unceasingly, sometimes, sometimes it seems impractical. But if we're honest, who, who really has the power to change literally any situation we're in to our good and for his glory by whatever means he sees fit? So Mary, Mary doesn't play games with the people who think they're in charge. She goes to the one who she knows is in charge, who happens to be her son. What a display of faith, right? Jesus, Jesus would respond to that with enthusiastic support, right? Uh, verse 4 says, uh, Woman, what concern is that to you and to me? My hour has not yet come. That seems, seems a little disrespectful to call your mom woman. Uh, I know if I did that to my mom, I would get yanked. Uh, so my, uh, my, my dad and I sound, sound very similar, and so one day we tried to play a trick on my mom. So she yelled up the stairs for me. And if you've ever been in a black household, you know you don't yell what if your parents call your name. And so, my, so I'm, I'm up with my dad and we're looking at each other and we know we sound alike. And so he yells down, what? And she came up mad <laughs> at me. I, I was gonna get in trouble for that. Moral of the story, don't, respect, don't, don't disrespect your mother. So, but that's, not, but that's not what Jesus, that's not what Jesus is doing here. He's, re, he's, he's referring to his mother as he refers to other women in scripture in a gesture of, of general respect. Because in this moment, that, like, that's the relationship. Because of something that, you're, that you've already seen in the first chapter of John and something that we're going to see throughout the gospel of John. And it's something I like to call Jesus's cosmic mode. It's when Jesus doesn't answer questions because he's thinking beyond them. It makes for some of the funniest moments in this gospel. So we, we, we saw it at the end of the last chapter when, when, he sees, when he sees Nathaniel from far off and Nathaniel's like, how did, how did that happen? You're clearly the son of God. And Jesus responds and he says, oh, you thought my supernatural knowledge was a big deal? You're going to see heaven opened and the angels walking up and down on the son of man. Now, anyone who heard that should have immediately responded with Jesus. That's a, that's a weird thing for you to say. Like, I, I have no idea what that means. And so here's another example. Jesus saying, after, after Mary says there's no wine, he says, basically, that's none of my business. My hour hasn't come yet. Like, Jesus isn't, in this moment, he isn't even thinking about the wedding. He's thinking about his mission. Later in John, starting in chapter seven, Jesus is going to start referring to his hour. That is the time of his suffering and his death. That's what's at the forefront of his mind. 
So if you thought I wasn't a party person, it seems to be the case that Jesus is even worse. He's at a several days long wedding celebration and his mind is on the suffering that he's going to endure, presumably in a few years. Jesus is focused, but he's not ignoring Mary. He hears Mary say, basically, hey, this party is about to die. And his first response is, yeah, that's probably right. The party won't really start until I'm done doing what I gotta do. Now isn't the time for celebration, one could argue. The world's a mess. Do you sometimes feel that? I'm, a, I'm about to defend my dissertation in two days, and, like, and people keep asking, thanks, y'all. People keep asking me, like, how are you going to celebrate? How are you going to celebrate afterwards? And I'm like, I don't know. I'm, I can't think about celebrating right now. I, gotta, I got stuff to do. If, if, you, if you engage your sanctified imagination, the same thing could possibly be going through the mind of our Lord. Party, I got work to do. But Mary just cruises right past it in the perseverance of faith. And she, tur- and she turns to the servants and says, do what he says. Why? Because she knows that the Lord is going to do what is right in this situation. She doesn't miss a beat, and she doesn't even see what Jesus says as a rejection. And so Jesus decides to do the first of his signs. Jesus decides that maybe, maybe it's okay to party a little bit early. And so we get to the meat of this text and the meat of this miracle. Let's read again the last half of this passage, verses 6 to 11. Now, there were six stone water jugs, therefore Jewish rites of, pur- of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine. Okay, we gotta pause for a second because the miracle just happened. And you just like slide right through it. But like somewhere where, somewhere like as the servants are walking, like the water turns into wine by Jesus's hand. Okay, back to it. Just file it, just file it. There's a a growing file hopefully in your mind. When When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Y'all, this is a a shout-worthy text. Maybe you don't see it. So it, it starts with six giant stone water jars that are meant for rites of purification. So these are jars that are meant to remind you of your ritual impurity, jars that remind you of your failures, jars that remind you of your sin, jars that remind you of your uncleanness, jars that remind you of your inadequacy, jars that represent the law. Now the law is good, but you and I are not. And you'll remember back from John 1, 26 and 27, I believe, from from Christ's fullness, we have received grace in place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And so Jesus, knowing all of this, tells the servants to fill those jars with water, which would be normal for purification. But by the time that water gets to the head steward, the master of the feast the water has already turned into wine. 
in those moments, Jesus has changed mourning into joy. Jesus has changed corruption to cleanness. Jesus has changed the symbol of our inadequacy to an overflowing expression of celebration. Jesus has changed the means of your purification to a reason for your exaltation. I don't, okay, so I don't, I don't know if y'all get the, 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 the dramatic nature of this shift. So, so, so what, what was once occasion for solemnity is now occasion for further turning up. These, these giant jars that were once used for ritual baths are now sources of good wine. And yet this is precisely how the God that we serve works. We do the Lord a great disservice when we frame him as a, as a dour master who just wants us to grin and bear it as we obey arduous commands. The God of the scriptures is a God who delights in blessing his people. It's a God, the God of the scriptures is a God who celebrates alongside his people, who, who, who delights in rescuing you, a God who delights in liberating you. I want you to listen to Zephaniah 3.17. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. Psalm 18.19. He brought me out into a broad place. He rescued me because he delighted delighted in me. Isaiah 62, three to five, you shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. You shall no more be termed forsaken and your land shall no more be termed desolate, but you shall be called my delight is in her and your land married for the Lord delights in you and your land shall be married. As you sit here, you may know what it's like to be forsaken, to feel unloved, to feel ostracized, to feel marginalized. Maybe, maybe it's your chronic pain. Maybe it's dealing with the racialization of our society. Maybe you're poor. Maybe you're infertile. Maybe your family has ostracized you. We're going through the book of Ruth in our Bible study. And the book begins with a woman, Naomi, and her and 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 she goes into and she goes into Moab and she which is Moab is a is a land of one of one of Israel's enemies and she loses her husband and she loses her two sons and it's just her and her daughters-in-law and she's in a foreign land she doesn't know anybody and she's and and being a woman particularly in these spaces was profoundly unsafe and she is desolate and crying out to the Lord in anguish Maybe you've tasted that pain. To you, the Lord says, cast your burdens on me and you will find a God who delights in saving you. Not a God who reluctantly looks at you and thinks, oh, really, you? I don't need you to clean yourself up before you come into my house. This is a God who runs to you like the father ran to, a, ran to the prodigal son, wrapped his son in his arms and kissed him. And I wanna take that Another step deeper, because there's a sweet, sweet detail of this text. It's in verse 9. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Right there. Everyone's going to get some of the wine at this party, but everybody doesn't get the honor of knowing where it came from. Everybody's going to get some wine at this party, but everybody doesn't get the honor of knowing where it came from. 
In fact, the people who think they're in charge of the party don't know where the wine came from. But the, but the servants do. This leads us to a very important point. Listen to the servants. Many have said this, but, 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 but I, want to, I want to do a quick quote from, 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 from womanist theologian Shaniqua Walker-Barnes. If you don't know what womanist theology is, it's a, it's a critique both of feminist theology, which is uh, primarily white women, and, and black liberation the, uh, theology, which is often black men. Uh, and, so, and, so, and, and so womanist theology is coming particularly from the perspective of, of black women. She, she summarizes this, this point well. In any society, the most marginalized people best understand the rules of the system because they need to know the politics and dynamics in order to avoid being crushed by them. It's often, it can be the case that that the poor can understand elements of the economy that the rich don't. For example, some have said that if the penalty for a crime is a fine, then it's only functionally a crime for the poor. We can talk about bail another time. Have you, have you thought about the fact that some people may be too poor to get a job? Think about what it costs to apply for a job. Gas money, clothes for interviews, childcare costs. It can be overwhelming. Women understand the workings of a broadly patriarchal society better than many men do, because men don't normally think about the advantages that we've unjustly accrued for ourselves. Those of us racialized as non-white tend to understand the way that racialization works because we need to in order to survive. And it seems to be the case that throughout the scriptures, the Lord takes special interest and cares especially for those who are powerless, and he sets himself against those who are powerful. You know, I, like, I, this is not just me saying it. This is what the scriptures say. So we like to think about the Beatitudes in Matthew. Blessed are the peacemakers, blessed are the poor in spirit, all of these kinds of things. There are also bad Beatitudes in Luke, where he just says, blessed are the poor. And he's also got woes, curses as well. Woe to the rich. Like that, like, and that's a normal thing to hear throughout the scriptures. Think of, think of Mary's song of praise, the Magnificat, in Luke 1, 52 and 53. She says, God has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. That's not me. That's just, this is the Lord. Like, don't, if you get upset, like, that's not, let's get mad at the Lord for saying that. You, you see it throughout the scriptures. The Lord favors the downtrodden. When Israel groaned because of their slavery in Exodus 2, what did God do? He heard their groaning, he remembered his covenant, he saw his people, and he knew that he would save them. The prophets are clear in what makes the Lord the most angry, idolatry and oppression of the poor. Care for the vulnerable is literally one of, the, one of the primary and most commonly repeated commands in Scripture to the point that James is going to say in James 1.27 that religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows, that is, the most, that is the, most, the most afflicted in our society, in their affliction, and to, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. How do you know that you're being obedient to the Lord? Are you listening to the servants in your midst? Are you listening to the downtrodden in your midst? Because they may see the source of the miracle when you can't. Are you serving them? Are you caring for them? Are you pouring yourself out for them? Jesus in Matthew 25, when he talks about his return, he's not gonna ask you, present a well-articulated doctrine of the Trinity and the person of Christ and make sure to footnote the historical creeds. As much as I would love for that to be the case, because I spent years with it, like love that stuff, 
And they're great and they're wonderful insofar as they point you to what Jesus is actually going to ask. Did you feed the hungry? Did you give drink to the thirsty, visit the prisoner, clothe the naked? Because if you did this to the least, the last, and the lost, you did it to me. The servants often know more than the master. And you know what keeps us from serving the downtrodden? Fear. Fear that it might mess up our situation. Fear that if I give up too much, there might not be any left for me. Fear that I could be taken advantage of. And if you feel any of these fears, I want to, I want to, I want to encourage you with two biblical examples. One, Naomi, the other, Jesus. In Ruth, in Ruth, chapter, in, in Ruth chapter 3, Naomi, Naomi creates kind of a scheme to get Ruth married because she's, she's poor, she's Moabite, and she's... And, 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 and a woman in the period of the judges when women are not safe throughout that entire book. And so Naomi pours herself out to, 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 to scheme for Ruth's marriage so that she could have security. And Naomi's vulnerable herself, but she pours herself out for Ruth. In the meantime, though, when Ruth goes through that process, Ruth is constantly thinking about Naomi. When you Pour yourself out for the vulnerable. God is the one who has promised to care for you. So we spend a lot of time thinking, oh, how am I gonna, you know, how am I gonna keep this, keep this for myself and all that kind of, the Lord has promised to care for you. Jesus, in the, in the, in the Sermon on the Mount, chap, chapter six is literally all about this, where he's like, don't, don't, wor- don't worry so much about you. The birds, I care for the birds. How much, am I gonna, how, much, how much am I gonna care for you? What he says is, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. What's he saying there? He's saying that if you pour yourself out for the vulnerable, I have promised to care for you. You wanna protect your, you wanna, you wanna, you wanna protect your own bank account. I wanna give to you out of mine. This fear, this fear that we have, that if, if I love, if I, if, I, if, I, if I love my neighbor, think about, think about what I could lose. Think about what you could gain. Think about what the Lord has, think about what the Lord has for you when you pour yourself out for others. And that's not even the shout, like that's part of the shout worthy part of this text, but that's not even the whole thing. Because look at this conversation between the master of the feast and the bridegroom, brother, brother takes him aside and says in verse 10, hey, everybody, everyone serves the good wine first. And then when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you've kept the good wine until now. Normally you save the cheap stuff for later because people are too drunk to notice. But, but in this case, the, the best was saved for last. This, brothers and sisters, is the gospel. See, normally when you, when you build a relationship with someone, sometimes you put, your, you put your best foot forward in the beginning, but then as time goes on, you, some, sometimes you get lazy. Maybe it's true of your romantic relationships. In the beginning, you pursued your significant other, you studied their interests, you did big gestures, whatever, but as time went on, you just kind of, eh. Maybe it's been this way with your job. When you start, when you first got the job, you were excited, put in a whole lot of effort, but then as time went on, you just kind of, Huh. Praise be to the Lord that he did not work that way with us. 
Because the God of the scriptures, the covenant God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God who has revealed himself in Jesus Christ is a God who not only relentlessly pursues, but a God who lavishly celebrates. This is, this is not a God who was content with just clothing Adam and Eve before expelling them from the garden. No, this is a God who gave them a promise that a redeemer was coming. This is not a God who was going to let his plan be ruptured by selfishness, by greed, sexual assault, murder, slavery, oppression, or any one of the number of obstacles to God's plan that you see from Genesis through the prophets. No, this is a God, a triune God, of whom one of their number would take on flesh, live a truly human life, live a truly perfect human life in accordance with the law of God, die a brutal death in our place, be raised with all power in his hands, and ascend to the right hand of the Father. This is a God who gathers individuals, who binds a people together by his spirit, and who redeems a world. This is a God who is not content with any old wine. This is a God who demands and produces the best for his people. This is why the prosperity gospel is so foolish. Because because, because your dreams for yourself are so small, so small compared to what the Lord has for you. In, in Psalm 37, 4, take delight in the Lord and he will give you the desires of his heart, of your heart. What does that mean? That means that if your delight is in the Lord, that those are going to be the desires of your heart. And the Lord already wants to give you more of himself. And so the more that you delight in the Lord, the more of himself the Lord gives you. Dear brother, dear sister, the Christian life is, yes, a life that is pockmarked with suffering, but, but it must also be a life marked with unquenchable joy and celebration. And yeah, we're going to swing back and forth. There are going to be times of mourning, of course. But we must not forget that changing water to wine is Christ's first sign in John for a reason. And that reason is this, that we, we often like to work out of uh, frameworks of scarcity. That's just like, I just, I, I, I got to hold on to what I got because it's, it's all I got. The Lord came that you might have life and life more abundantly. The Lord has come that this, that this mentality of scarcity would be shifted into a mentality of abundance. Abundance from him. With Christ's entry into the world, the new creation has begun. All that is old is passing away. Behold, the new is here. What, what was once occasion for your death, the Lord can change into occasion for new life. What were once your inadequacies and weaknesses in the hands of the Lord can become strengths. The spaces that you may have once been in, spaces of oppression, spaces of pain, spaces of constantly having to justify yourself and your own existence, the Lord of new wine may be calling you out of those spaces saying, I want to turn this water into wine. I'm preaching to myself. That's all right. The, 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 the question is this. Will you drink that new wine? Will you reach for the cup that Christ holds out, holds out to you? The cup that burns with the discomfort of your repentance, but which ultimately warms and nourishes with the comforting gift of union with Christ. He calls us, each of us, to repent and to believe the gospel and to live lives of continuing to repent and believe the good news that Christ has died on our behalf defeated our enemies, paid our ransom, and set an example for us. Christ revealed his glory 
to his disciples in this miracle. His disciples believed in him, believed that he was who he said he was. In their minds, what could have been going through their minds was uh, with the promise that Jacob makes to, or Israel, makes to Judah in Genesis 49. In this promise, he says that uh, this, is, this is where we get that, that, that the Messiah is going to come out of the line of Judah. And he, says, and he says to Judah, describing this Messiah, he has washed his garments with wine and his, and, and his clothing with the blood of grapes. What's that saying? It's saying that when the Messiah comes, he's ushering in a time of abundance. When Christ dies, is raised, and sends the Holy Spirit, that's, it's an overflowing gift. It's the greatest gift that we could ever receive. Because the God of the Scriptures is a God who not only rejoices over you, but who wishes for you to rejoice in him. The Westminster Shorter Catechism, so right. Our purpose is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And union with Christ is occasion for brain-shattering joy. Union with Christ is the source, is the source of our unfathomable peace. Union with Christ is the source of unshakable strength. Union with Christ is the source of unbreakable love. Union with Christ, which the Lord has called you to, is a source of unquenchable joy. So what are we doing to cultivate that joy? Is that even a priority? Do we get up in the morning thinking, what what new joys and new mercies does the Lord wish for me to meditate on and proclaim today? If we enter into our days and relationships with that expectation, the world will see the people of God for what we are, the light of the world because we're beacons of the resurrected Christ. Dear brother, dear sister, it's time for new wine. Turn up. Let's pray.